You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since Welcome to the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. I am William, or Large William, uh, whichever you prefer. Uh, and across the border from me, there was to be two gents, one who you hear every week, one who you heard last week for the first time. Uh, however, Sammy, my uh, my partner, uh, is not with us today. He had some stuff come up. Life got in the way a little bit. And um, as such, instead of a menage, we have a one-on-one with uh, our good friend Joe from BK. That is, of course, Brooklyn. Joe, welcome back to the show. It's been a short turnaround from uh, the midnight ride to the the big show. So welcome back. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Sorry for everyone who had just heard me. <laughs> no, no, it's good. It was good. I felt like we had a good episode, and we we tackled a film with evolution that um, I, I was worried it was going to be a little hard to stretch our legs. But uh, we we did stretch them, I think, quite well. And um, Duke, I don't think, is as much of a bear to wrestle with. But I think it's it's uh, definitely a little bit of a challenging film to talk about in some regards. So yeah, but we'll I think get. it has the same. Yeah, I think it has the same um, problem of like a reveal that you necessarily don't want to give away. But it also doesn't matter that much. But I think mm. it matters a little more with Duke than with uh, evolution. Yeah, I would agree with that. And of course, the Duke we're talking about uh, is the Duke of Burgundy, uh, film from last year, directed by Peter Strickland. Strickland's now, I guess, two for two in terms of coverage on our show. Uh, he actually has a he actually has a debut film. Uh, Catalin Varga. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you seen it? I have not. Uh, I I've heard it's okay. I heard that he stepped up his game with his uh, with uh, Barbarian, but. I want to see it now um, mm-hmm. because you know to to uh, show my hand. For my money, Strickland's one of my favorite working filmmakers. I think that I think that he's maybe the most uh, prolific. I mean, not prolific, but uh, maybe like brilliant filmmakers working right now. I think he's really smart, so I'm excited for whatever he whatever he puts his hand on. Agreed, and I don't know that there's anyone like him. 
Um, it's an exciting time for British cinema, really. But mm-hmm. we can, uh, which I haven't, and again, not to, and apologies in advance to our British listeners, but hasn't always been my favorite, uh, my favorite uh, dessert at the table. But um, between him and a few others, we'll we'll get to that. And our other film uh, is a dessert, if it even would be a dessert uh, of, of any kind, of a different kind. <laughs> Uh, it's still in Europe, but uh, a real kick in the kick in the dick, if you will. 1983's uh, Gerald Cargill film *Angst* or *Angst*, um, which has finally seen the light of day with the proper release here on this side of the world. So we are going to talk about those two films. Uh, I may not have said it, but this is episode 357. And welcome back, everyone. Hope you're enjoying October. Hope your pumpkin spice lattes, your pumpkin pies, your Everything fall is in full swing, especially your Halloween um, consumption. Your house is decorated. Your films are being viewed. This is kind of, yeah, I, I think Duke kind of defies a little bit of classification, but angst or angst can be considered a horror film in a lot of ways. It's, it's as mm-hmm. horrific a film as, as I've seen. Um, but uh, as always, since you are the guest, Joe, let's, uh, let's kick it over to you and uh, hear what you've been watching lately. Yeah, man, I've, uh, I've been killing it this month actually like surprise i i said i wasn't gonna do the october challenge this year uh my girlfriend just like pushed me to do it she she said she wanted to do it so i was like all right we'll do it and then i i actually set aside like lists so i've been like blowing through all the first time watches and stuff um so i guess uh I I catch I caught up on the last two Fessenden uh, films in the box set I I just got from uh, Scream Factory Wendigo and The Last Winter uh, both were very high on my list uh, I I think that Wendigo may be my least favorite of the four in the box set but I'm a he's a a fantastic kind of uh, uh, I guess. Um, Discovery this year. I'd never seen his movies. I'd, he'd always been on my radar, but someone that I just always pushed aside, assuming that he made a certain kind of film, yep. and <clears throat> totally found out that he did not make that kind of film at all. <clears throat> um, other than that, uh, I saw I, I, I finally watched Wicker Man after my uh, reveal that I had never seen it last last episode. So that was amazing. Uh, oh yeah. Everything. That's yeah. uh, that's a good one, but you know we all have those big list of shamers, man. I mean, you just can't see everything. You can't. Um, mm-hmm. Even Danny Perry has list of shamers, but <laughs> you know it's funny. The uh, speaking of the Wicker Man, as most people know, Sammy was here for TIFF. Mm-hmm. Gosh, it was about seven, six, seven years ago now. Time flies, um, and you know I knew that we were in it for the long haul with the show when uh, I was sleeping in my bedroom. And uh, I happened to get up to get uh, a glass of water and uh, I heard some noise and some singing and I didn't know what it was. I was a bit thrown off at three in the morning and here he was nude dancing outside the door doing the brick act, brick, brick act and uh, number. And I thought, man, I don't know about that. I got, you know, but, uh, you know, I just went with it and, and that was that. So, yeah, but that, that's a good film, man. And speaking yeah. of you know, British films, that's, I think, one of the better um you know, short films. yeah, I was worried because it's like one of those movies that I know so much about and I feel like I almost could tell you everything about the movie before seeing it and it worked without totally. like fail. So that's the mark of a really fantastic film. Yeah, absolutely it is. 
Yeah, and then I got to see a 35 millimeter print of Alone in the Dark, the Jack Shoulder film from '82. Uh, oh, nice. Um, yeah. Uh, so that James uh, McCormick and Shells were there. Uh, it was it was really cool. They do this thing called the Deuce in New York. It's uh, all 35 millimeter screenings. They make a big event out of it. They have a huge introduction, and they actually had uh, Jack come in uh, via Skype for uh, a little Q and A session at the end, which was great. Um. And then I guess to wrap it up, I I watched uh, Street Trash as well. Um, I'm not going to go through everything I saw because it would be insane. But Street Trash was another. I just listened to actually the episode you guys did in 2013. So mm. I had uh, I had seen about half of it before, but I never finished it. So I figured mm-hmm. I would uh, I would finish it up, and uh, I'm glad I did. The, the second half is a lot more bonkers than the first half, and totally. Mm-hmm makes worth it uh, watching it worthwhile it is an ugly film in in a lot of ways though like it is bonkers like you i do think the second half makes up for it but yeah it's uh it's a bit of an ugly film in some ways it's it's very weird uh (laughs) it's it's a little it it does i don't know what it's trying to i don't know if it has any (laughs) any anything it's trying to say at all yeah um there could be some. There seems to be something, you know, as far as almost in that. I think you guys related it to like the stuff, and you know, it almost has that. But like Larry Cohen, you always feel has like an intent and some yes. type of message. This movie doesn't seem to have that at all. No, it's just yeah, not as much at all. Yeah, let's just expl- let's just like you know get to the people exploding, which is fine. It's good exploitation in that matter, but it's kind of pure exploitation in that matter. Yeah, totally, totally. But yeah, Cohen definitely. There's an undercurrent. There's a subtext, and Cohen's a great writer, and you know, uh, stuff mm-hmm. stuff's good, man. I was very pleased when I rewatched it a few years ago when I was sick. How well it how it was even better than I remembered it because I was old enough to appreciate what it was saying. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. I think that's kind of this, you know some of the highlights of what I've seen. All right, I haven't seen. Well, I've seen a bit, but the problem is, blood was going to be covered on the midnight ride since I kind of turned that into a thing mm-hmm. in October. Um, but William and I watched, um, and up until last year, I don't know that I knew this. Was, I know it. I know it didn't exist. Excuse me. I didn't know that it existed up until last year. And it was the Grinch Halloween special. This, uh, were you aware of this? I don't know. I don't think I know of this one either. Yeah, this one's weird, man. No one knows about it. (laughs) And I didn't know about it till last year when I stumbled onto it looking for programming for my kids for Halloween. This month has gone by so quick, though. I feel like I haven't really got to do anything festive. Our house isn't decorated yet, but, um... Watch this. <clears throat> it's definitely nowhere as good as um, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I want to say it might predate it even. Um, if it doesn't, I think the problem with it is it drags ass a bit. Um, it's not bad. Even William felt the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't use the exact same words, thankfully, that I did. Drag <laughs> it ass. But yeah, we kind of felt, he felt it the same way. This was a night where it was a Saturday night last week. And, um, Everyone else was asleep. He was still awake. And I said, uh, no, it was Sunday night. It was Thanksgiving Sunday here. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was, I had fallen asleep. Uh, what did we watch? What did we watch? Actually, you know what else we watched? It wasn't very, um, 
very Halloween-y, but it was Braden's choice. We watched the Disney Three Musketeers, which is like Mickey, Donald, and Goofy as the Three Musketeers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. You know, it's fine. You know, it's one of their kind of uh, direct-to-video ones from, I guess, late 90s, maybe. It's it's decent, certainly. Um, but, yeah, Grinch was, you know, was okay, uh, the Halloween one. Um I guess it's 11 years after... It was 11 after. Yeah, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. I'll have to check into that. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, it's a first-time watch, right? Like, it's, it's, uh, you know, to say you've seen it. Um, Otherwise, I don't know that I watched anything that I can really talk about right now. Um, I watched Horsehead, horror Mm -hmm. film from last year. Are you are you midnight riding that or yeah all these okay, films, cool. all these films I am I watched a film that uh, good friend all around good guy programmed uh, Hard Rock Zombies which will make for a very interesting uh, <laughs> review uh, man I'm not interested <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun one I'll say yeah. that it's fun. It's- it's been about 10 years since I've seen it, so like I only have a hazy recollection of a few scenes, but those few scenes uh, I think will be with me until the end of time. Yeah, it's insane. It was fun, definitely, definitely. Uh, then I did The Canal. Have you seen The Canal yet? No, I haven't seen this one. I really like The Canal also to pull back the curtain. Not to say the ones I'm not talking about I, I didn't care for, but The Canal uh, was programmed by Christine, Christine mm-hmm. M, or Christine, I'll just say, a good friend of the show. Former, I think the term is editrix is that the term for the female a female editor or you can just say editor i guess but i think i would just yeah i would have just said editor but i think she called herself an editrix maybe maybe i'm making that word up but (laughs) i thought i'd seen her say that and uh, maybe there was more of a meaning to that i don't know it's totally it's totally uh a female editor yeah is it okay cool so um she'd programmed this uh very good very good stuff you know kind of a lot did you did you dig oculus from last year I did actually. Yeah, so did I. Um, yeah I was uh, a little surprised by it. Funny story about that one. Uh, I watched it with um, with Sarah, my girlfriend, and um, she hated it. And then, like three weeks later, she's like, "Oh, I just watched this movie, Oculus. It was pretty good, actually. A surprise." And I was like, "We watched that together, and you told me how terrible it was." She's like, "I've never seen it before." And to this day, she maintains that she didn't watch it with me, but she did. So it's kind of a little meta uh, yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> aspect of the film itself like totally cognizant watched the whole movie with me wasn't sleeping and has no re- recollection of doing so much yikes yeah but it was a really good one you know the older i get it seems like the more i pull away from horror in some ways and that i don't want to say that's me quote-unquote growing up i think it's just more sometimes as i've gotten older the intensity of the genre weighs on me more Mm-hmm. Or when a film's lazy, it weighs on me more because mm-hmm. I've seen it so many times. It was my first love as far as genre film, as it is with a lot of us. So when you see one that's you know that's that really impresses you, you know it's it's a it's a very pleasant surprise. And Oculus, I really really liked, but the canal for me is is right there. You know, it's uh, contemporary. It looks good, um, well made. It's it's intense in spots. Uh, yeah, check it out, man. I think you'll uh, I think you'll dig it. Um, then I did Dance of the Dead, which I've had the DVD for for probably about six or seven years. Um, it's it's much more broadly played, uh, kind of um, teen prom, zombies. It's not as lazy as it could be, mm-hmm. which is a good thing. It's hearts in the right place, but I'll, I'll expand on that when uh, we get to 
the Midnight Ride episode. I will say about Horsehead, since it seems like I've talked about the other ones I watched, uh, I think it's a good film. It's an interesting film. I think there's... <clears throat> I don't think it quite sticks to landing necessarily, but I really think the filmmaker is one to watch, and there's some fantastic, beautiful uh, imagery in it. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, that's it, man. That's uh, That was the week. It's, uh, you know, for the first time since I was in junior high, our Toronto Blue Jays are in the playoffs. So yeah, see, you've, I've seen you've been uh, watching those. Yeah, that's time really consuming. Up, but time consuming, man. Baseball games are no joke; they're long. So. <laughs> they are. <laughs> so I'm watching that, and um, you know that's the way it goes. But uh, yeah, hopefully I'll get a little more in this week. But you know that that can be a pipe dream sometimes. You know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so let's uh, let's take a break. We're going to go in chronological order as we had discussed uh, off the air, and we're going to come back and talk about uh, um, probably the antithesis of uh, singing in the rain, uh, Gerald Cargill's angst. We'll be right back. The following message is a paid advertisement for the Cult of Muscle podcast. The Cult of Muscle. You're either in it or you're dead. It's the dawning of a new age. The halls of Valhalla have been shuttered. The heroes of yore have either retreated to the shadows or taken to capering for the amusement of the small folk. Their past glories of distant memory. The barbells have been torn from their once puma-strong grips. The beards shone from their square jaws, only to be transplanted onto flannel-clad, puny weaklings with fingers barely powerful enough to strum a ukulele. The time has come, my brothers, to restore order from the chaos. No longer will our heroes be forgotten. No longer will their great deeds be viewed through a foggy lens of irony. Hear now our rallying cry as we scream it from the mountaintops, as we bellow it from iTunes and Limson and Facebook. It's time to join the cult, my brothers. So don your cloaks and enter the cult of muscle. After what seems like, and I guess really is years, we're going to be talking about this film, uh, Angst, 1983, Gerald Cargill. Um, just to talk about this film for a moment, it was one that I had seen, I want to say about five or six years ago, roughly, and I was just completely blown away by it. It was one that I had seen because of Gaspar Noé, as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. my good friend. Gaspar, <laughs> and, uh, and he had said somewhere in an interview that I stand alone, and his film. He just he was really he really loved the film, and he was influenced by it. And I stand alone was really influenced by it. 
Mm-hmm. I thought, wow, okay. And it's that thing, you know, when you love a filmmaker and they, uh, they rep for something, you really want to see it, you know? So, um, I saw it and, uh, I just, I wanted to talk to people about it, but not a ton of people had seen it, you know, um, because it was hard to get in the States for a long time or in Canada. And, um, thankfully called epics, uh, put out a Blu-ray, I guess a few months ago now. Yeah. I mean, I, I got it. What? Maybe a month and a half, two months ago. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think like the date was probably in September, the release date, but yeah, kind of a big thing, you know, a big deal. Absolutely. I think, uh, for this, for you know, for genre fans, um, and I should say too, and I haven't said yet. Forgive me. This episode is brought to everyone by Diabolic DVD. They are our sponsors, and they were kind enough, as always, to supply us uh, with these films. So, thank you to them, uh, as always. Um, so let's uh, let's talk about Onks. I'll uh, I'll synopsize it and uh, I'll let you roll with it while I finish my cereal before it gets too soggy. Um, a troubled man gets released from prison and starts taking out his sadistic fantasies on an unsuspecting family living in a secluded house. I guess that uh, encapsulates the film to some degree in a very bare bones way. Um, mm-hmm. You had seen this before. Yeah, I caught um, when it, when they did the 4K show. Uh, you know, or I don't mm, know yes, if it was 4K, yes. maybe 2K. Um, but when they did the whole restoration, they did that small theatrical release. I know you got to catch a date on that too. I got to catch it with some fine gents as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I went and saw it, uh, midnight (laughs) showing kind of good and bad. Uh, you know, I don't think there's any perfect way to see this movie, but, uh, it's, um, you know, seeing it at midnight is kind of good. It puts you in the, it kind of puts you in that drained mindset that it will, the movie will totally grade on in in, I guess a good way. Um, Mm -hmm. so I'd seen it once before, so I actually, and it wasn't very long ago, so I took this chance to kind of watch this one a lot with commentary on, which was cool. which was nice because I got to learn a lot kind of about the making of it, which is pretty fascinating. Um, but, you know, to, to start, I guess, did, uh, you know, I think the opening shot is fantastic. Um, oh, you yeah. know, you have, you have this camera craning down across this, you know, the terrace of this pr- prison, um, it almost reminds me of Citizen Kane as I do a few shots in this film. And I know that might sound strange to some people, but there's, you know, there's the iconic open of Citizen Kane where you're going over these, um, these fences and you're like kind of impenetrating this seemingly impenetrable like fortress. And I feel like that's kind of a lot of what uh, Carl was doing here is like, Oh, making the viewer aware of these kind of obstacles, uh, but then also subjectively putting us like right inside of the character. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I totally do. You know what it reminds me of too? Whenever I get an open, you get an opening like this, it's reminiscent to me of um, Cirque's all that heaven allows. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. but yeah, this one, yeah, it's yeah. Absolutely. And uh, Zvig, uh, Zbigniew uh, Rybczynski is the, the DOP. So uh-huh. co-writer, He's a co-writer as well. And he's, uh, he was a filmmaker before Cargill. Um, Cargill actually kind of, interestingly enough, um, and you learn this if you if you listen to the, either the interview or uh, the commentary track, is that Car- uh, Rybicki, uh, I'm going to call him Zbig. Uh, yes, because I, I think he goes by Zbig in the Western Yeah, world. Yeah, that's Rybczynski. what... Yeah, that's what uh, Cargill calls him too, so... He was living in Poland, and he was – it was – I mean, it was the 80s, and I guess Poland was under martial law at the time. 
Uh, so Cargill used this film as a way of getting him out of Poland mm. uh, to come to Austria to work. And then he was eventually able to get his family out as well. So this movie essentially kind of got him out of a weird time in Poland. And, you know, this is also around the time the possession was made. And uh, if anyone knows anything about that, you know, uh, Zulowski was like kind of booted from the Polish industry and was dealing with a lot of um, pressure from the Polish government about the films he was making. So it's, you know, it's an interesting time to be a filmmaker in a, you know, Soviet-occupied country. Oh, it totally was. And what's funny about the you mentioned possession is, incorrectly for a long time, I had assumed that um, Rubczynski was the DOP on possession because in some ways it feels very similar in terms of the way it's shot for me. And <clears throat> I feel like some of these Eastern Bloc DOPs, like it's a shame that Rubczynski didn't work more because when you look at his credits, <clears throat> there's not a ton of stuff in there. There's a lot of shorts um, in terms of feature length films. There's a few. Oh, interesting enough, he did um, a Swiss film with a Spanish title. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's his last credit in 96. But otherwise, not a ton in there. And it's really too bad because I think he is he's an all-world talent, uh, as evident with this film. And, you know, they would have been up against budgetary, technological and other limitations in making a film of this kind at this time. Yeah. I mean, to pull back the curtain, um, this movie's cinematography like blew my mind. I mean, big time. It'll, it won't work for some people cause it's going to be too, uh, too much cause the, the camera is constantly moving and it's sometimes moving in the strangest ways. And it makes, doesn't make a lot of sense, like narratively, you know, it's not a lot of motivated camera movements. Um, it's a lot, uh, the camera is almost autonomous and moves when it wants to move. Um, but that's the kind of camera work that I really enjoy. I'm really drawn to, um, really excessive, um, stylistic and subjective camera. Um, so I think that in, you know, his contribution to this film is pretty much, one of the aspects that that make this movie worthwhile when it could have easily been a movie that, you know, is right. I could write off. Um, Oh, big time to kind of get into it. I mean, you know, the story itself is, is it's strange. I mean, I think there's a lot going on, but there's also, you could watch this movie as a silent movie in a way, and you wouldn't get the, the psychological dimensions, but you would know, you would never be kind of confused about what's going on. The visuals are actually very much detached from the actual narrative of the film, whereas the narrative of the film pulls you through this character's life, you know, basically in voiceover. So I think that's an interesting, um, it's, you know, it's something that it would seem more appropriate for a short film, but they make it work in 83 minutes, which is shocking. Cause I mean, essentially there's no, there's very little on screen dialogue. It's mostly voiceover dialogue. Um, yeah, it's almost all voiceover, which <clears throat> works wonderfully because if you're put inside the head of a killer in his mind and his mind's not resting. So we really get, um, a peek into his psyche at all moments during all actions. And again, if you take that away, the film is virtually a, you know, uh, a silent film in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, you don't need dialogue because everything you're seeing on screen is very evident what's happening. And sometimes people say, and I think, I don't know if this is always the case because it sometimes can be square peg around hole with this statement. But, um, you know, if you can tell a film or tell a story with a film with, with no dialogue, it's testament to what you're doing. And I think we very clearly could have had that. And I also want to say too, I feel like everyone that worked on this film 
really knocks it out of the park. Um, to, to jump ahead of myself here, um, and in lesser hands, something like this just could have been an exercise in in poor taste and kind of reveling in the muck and mm-hmm. the, the, the crimson. And this doesn't do that, even though it even though it does leave you feeling awful. It's it's the, the craft of the filmmaking is such that. I think to me this is this is true horror. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's funny because Cargill now looks back at the film and he's like, "There's so much. I would, there's a lot I would change." He's like, "He's like, I think that it's uh, it's actually too violent, um, and I I think all the violence needs to be there, but more off screen uh, and not so much shown." So it's interesting to see him look back and kind of, um, you know, he obviously was not trying to make an exploitation film, but in a way he kind of did. And I think he's a little uncomfortable with that. He mentions multiple times on the commentary track that this movie is kind of uh, attracted splatter horror fans. And he doesn't, he doesn't know if he feels he's very comfortable with that. And I think he's, what he's trying to get to is that he doesn't want to, this movie is not supposed to be pleasurable. A watch. It's not, you're not supposed to watch it in revel in the popcorn and yeah, get him, get him. It's mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's the opposite of that, and mm-hmm. I heard him say that as well. Yeah, that also again comes with remember what you and I were speaking about with with um, necromantic is the youth of of in this case not the viewer but the filmmaker, uh, and now as an older man, he felt like maybe he he said he felt like the cinematography was excessive, needlessly excessive at times, and the film's violence was. But I think both. I'm perfectly fine with the violence is horrific mm-hmm. without feeling titillating or like it's meant to titillate, which a lot of times in with splatter films and horror, certain horror films, it's solely there to titillate. Whereas this mm-hmm. has to me the, the perfect um, effect. And that is the, the violence in this is horrible and awful. Not a lot of people. And I think we did talk Sammy and I talked about this, I can't even what we did last week. I'll have to look here. But what something we had done recently, or we had talked about recently, with the violence in films, uh, not it's a real knack. It takes a real knack to be able to shoot violence in a way that it's it looks fantastic, but it also looks very realistic, and it doesn't seem like it's overly stylized or titillating. And mm-hmm. and Cargill, and we should say too, Cargill's only directed one film ever, like one feature length film, right? So. Yeah, it may be the biggest. It may be the biggest bummer of all time. Uh, <laughs> well, between between him yeah. and um, the dude that did Electric Light and Blue. Mm-hmm. Oh my God! Yeah, I don't like. Care. Come on, those two guys combined made two films. Mm-hmm. Like what a tragedy! And it's almost as if I mean I know why Cargill never. Well, I know why both filmmakers never made mm-hmm. a film again. Um, and it's almost maybe the best because maybe they couldn't make a film again. These movies were such statements for them that, Emotionally you know, draining, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just possible. I mean, Cargill has said that he wants to make another movie. He's ready to do it, but we'll see if it happens. And, you know, we'll see if he's, a, you know, able to catch it. Obviously, like, this movie, I mean, we should say it's based off of a series of kind of true crime mm-hmm. Um Principally, a case in Austria where someone was let out for temporary leave and used his leave to uh, invade a home and torture the people and murder them over a series of 24 hours. So, you know, very much the plot of this film. Um, So I think that, you know, this movie is 
it had it happened at the time it did because it had to happen. Um, it wouldn't had you know it wouldn't have been made by Cargill the same way just a few years later. So you know it's hard to say what his career could be now, but I'm thankful that it happened for this movie because um, this was a big kind of re- revelation for me this year. Um, I'd never quite seen anything like it. I'd seen movies that are similar to it in <clears throat> interesting ways. Possession being kind of one of them, as you mentioned, the cinematography, yeah. the cold blue um, kind of color palette. Um, but, you know, I think this movie is completely singular in a lot of ways. Yeah, and it was uh, Werner Niesek, uh was the, the serial killer that um, it was based on. And apparently... Uh, it was primarily that, but also called together some stuff from um, Peter Curtin, who uh, is actually who uh, M is based on, Fritz Long's M. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I should say, too, one thing when we were talking about Zib, Zbig, or Ribchinski, um, is he's uh, a Polish animator, too, which is kind of cool. Uh, I'm bummed that Sammy's not around to try to uh, pronounce that last name. Man, that would have been fun. <laughs> when you get a lot of consonants crashing together, it's always a good time at the GTTMC. Oh, Polish names are so hard. I work with um, this, I work with a Polish person, and she's like given me the like the phonetic pronunciation of her name. And without that, it would have been just so difficult. Butchered. Um, oh, I, I I still am embarrassed to kind of say it because I know I'm going to butcher it. So anytime she's in the room, I desperately try to avoid having to have to say it. Hey, girl. <laughs> <laughs> At least, at least her her first name's super easy, so at least that there's that. But yeah, no doubt, man. Polish name is uh, no joke. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, you get back, in, I guess, in the thrust. Did you watch the the the? Did you watch, by any chance watch the prelude that's included on the Blu-ray? With Gaspar Noé. Yeah, I did. Oh, there's a second one though. There's actually like a second cut of the film with about six minutes added to the introduction. Oh, I don't know um, what's in that because I, maybe I inadvertently did. There's um, like two versions of the film, then is there? Uh, I guess it's probably they shot it and just cut it, and I think they made the right decision in cutting it. But it's essentially you get to see um, they show you one of the murders that that uh, Kay does before he's incarcerated. And oh, then well, they, I didn't see that. Yeah, and then they go through this kind of very um, removed. Um, section where doctors are going through his life and talking about his psycho, like his psychological uh, state, and and they basically go through everything that the film goes through in voiceover, but in a more clinical manner. Um, I think it's worth watching after you've seen the movie, but definitely don't watch it for the first time if anyone's out there and has the Blu-ray and is uh, thinking about watching it. I think it actually does a lot to. Um, make the movie a little less interesting. I think getting the psychology through the character and not through um, this clinical manner doesn't work. It works a lot better, but it's something that I think is actually pretty interesting after the fact it would make for maybe a better short film uh, as a supplementary feature, like separated from the film uh, tagged on the tagged on the beginning. It feels a little bit much. Um, okay. Well, that's good to know. That's mm-hmm. good to know. Yeah, it's almost the way it's shot. It's very procedurally, like it's very rem- clinical. It's nothing like the film itself, except for the the actual like murder that happens. But that's very quick. That's maybe thirty seconds, and then it's probably about five and a half minutes of this procedure. Hmm. Um, so that that was interesting. I didn't know that existed. Um, uh, so I 
I'm happy that Call Epics kind of got that cut out. Um, yeah. It's called the pro. I think it's called um, the film with prologue. But I mean, the Gaspar Noé intro is great as well. I, I appreciated that. Um, I'd, be, I'd be curious because he says he. And again, I think he says he prefers the French dub of the film. Yeah. That might be for two reasons. Typically when we see something first, like it, it's the first time we tend to have a preference for that. Like, uh, so I think that might factor in from it also, but maybe being French, you know, hearing it in his native tongue, um, might work better for him. So I, I would be curious to see that, uh, that French cut just to see how I felt about it, if it had the same impact or not. But, you know, I think it's, it's going to be hard to top this one. This, this, uh, this cut's pretty darn good. Yeah, I think it'd be the strength of the vo- the voiceover actor. I mean, like this movie does would work, I guess, as a dub because most of the dialogue is not on screen. Yes, and I think that's where he's getting with it. So I, I, I mean, I don't speak French, so I think the French, I wouldn't be able to get the effect that Noé had. But I guess if if there was a decent English dub out here, which I don't think there is, uh, it's it's not included on this disc. If there is, uh, I'd be interested for the experiment, but um, I rather. I don't have the problem I think that No Way has of not being able to be completely inside the mind of the character with the subtitles. I see where he's coming from, but it wasn't a problem for me. No, and again, we saw this one first. He didn't, so that could, That's true. could also factor in. But yeah, I think th- the language works well, and I think there's something to be said for what the few times we do hear our, our character speaking, we know it's his voice in his head, too. So mm-hmm. it, uh, Erwin... Irvin Leder, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it works well knowing it's his voice. Yeah, and um, I mean, I think he's got he's got such a perfect, cre- like uh, I don't know, like it's it's a very shrill voice, and it yeah, it's it's brilliant for the film. So I mean, no way does mention that the French voiceover actor also has a brilliant voice. So maybe you know, it's it's just one of those cases of great dubbing. But I yeah, I think that Leder's voice is fantastic as his look is as well. Oh man, he is brilliantly cast. His face to me is one of the strengths of the film because mm. he looks, you know who he looks a little bit like is um, in some ways Billy Drago in that he's got these really high cheekbones and these kind of sharp teeth. He looks a little bit like a vampire to me mm-hmm. because of the sharp angles of his face. His face and I miss partially, I think, attributed to the film. You know, he got his, I think, internationally recognized for Das Boot. Mm-hmm. But um, his face is, just because of the sharp angles in his teeth, it's it's pretty intense in its own way. It's not like he has a, a, a cherubic face. Yeah, I mean, I feel bad. Last time we were on Talk About Victoria, we said that he had a snake face. And I would say that he the uh, letter has very much a very rat, um, rat-like face. Yeah. Um, and when you say Nosferatu, or uh, like a vampire, I think I think like a Nosferatu, uh, and I wonder if that was like intentionally like played up here. Um, you know, obviously that being an important story for the geographic location. I mean, this yeah. is Austria, not Germany, but it's you know shares a lot in common. Absolutely. Obviously, very different in many ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, Letter is he's fantastic in the film. I watched the interview with him, and it's strange to see him outside because he's quite. He's he's as an older gentleman, he's quite a handsome man, um, and quite the opposite of this. I wonder if he lost weight for the role or something, or the way they lit him was on purpose. But 
I mean, he just he's frightening in this film. He and, is so frightening. So, yeah, you, that's a good point. I wonder if he did lose weight because he has this this lean, hungry look to him. Uh huh. Very recessed. Uh, everything yeah. seems to be sunken in. Um, and I don't know if you got this feeling. The feeling I get of him in this movie, and it makes. I mean, it would make sense because Cargill said that angst, which means fear, is very is is uh, Kay's fear. Actually, it's not the characters he's um, attacking. It's actually the you know our principal character and murderer's fear, own fear that drives him to this. The whole movie, I I almost see him as a, a like an animal trapped in a cage that's responding to the feeling of being trapped. Because early on, he when the family comes home, you know he enters his home and it's empty and he's walking around. Um, but then when the family comes home, he gets he gets nervous, he hides, and then he tries to escape. And when he's not able to escape, he's thrown into this murderous rampage. So it almost seems that even though he planned on committing another act of murder directly after leaving uh, the prison in the beginning, um, I do think that in a lot of ways we're made to sympathize with him because he's almost, he almost feels like an animal in a cage and doesn't know how else to act. Yeah, sorry, I my throat you after. I just it blew my mind. I just sent you a picture of Letter playing Pier Paolo Pasolini. <laughs> in, uh, let me think. In a five, almost five-hour Polish film made on Pasolini. Oh wow! What yeah. are they holding in their hands? <laughs> oh, I don't know, man. There's a naked, bearded dude smiling, and I don't know, man. That looks funny? like a Pasolini. Uh, that looks like something that would be about Pasolini. That's for sure. Yeah, man. I'll tell you what. The, other, that one dude's clearly the titan of physiques in this picture, man. The guys are. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> but uh, anyway, interestingly, like he's playing Pasolini, so mm-hmm. we can we can compare whether he or Willem Dafoe, who I feel like when he was younger, could have done this role too. This sort of facial structure and whatnot, an intense actor. Absolutely. That's, a, that's an interesting point. I didn't think of any other actors that would be good in this role, but I do think that Defoe has that facial structure of making that would be perfect for it. Um, I like that this movie has a clear political statement. Um, we're made to sympathize with the character, but not in any sort of one-to-one ratio or like direction, I think. like It's not that we have to accept his murders, but in a way, we're forced... We're so we're forced to be with him and in his headspace so long, but by the end of the movie, I think we're really we're we're in his, we're we're on his camp, even if we don't support him. Like in a way, we're almost sickly rooting for him. Like we're not rooting for him, but as he's like reaching his end, you know, not of his life, but of the story. It's almost you know we feel his fear with him, and that's an interesting feeling. I think the only thing. Really, um, I mean, obviously, there's Henry. Um, you've made that. You've made that comparison. Other people have made that comparison. I think that's definitely the comparison to be made. But I actually think that the Maniac remake may have been cribbing from this movie a little bit. In that, um, I mean, obviously, it's cribbing from the original Maniac, but in the way that they use subjective camera work to get us inside of the headspace of the character. Obviously, it's not POV here, but I think that. There's a similar kind of technological process that in, invites us into the space of the character. Which doesn't always happen because a lot of times – and when you said Henry, just to be clear for you, Henry portrait of a serial killer. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't always happen where our 
protagonist is also the antagonist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're, we spend time with them because a lot of times in quote unquote slasher films, we are with the good folk, the innocent folk with this film, much like with maniac with Henry, mm-hmm. we're with the killer and inside the killer's head and inside their world for the mm-hmm. runtime of the film. Um, and I think again, yeah, that does work well. And it, it, it really exhausts you. It wears you out, which have you ever seen the film clean shaven? I have not, but I, I've heard your guys' uh, podcast a bit, and it's on the Criterion Collection, so clearly it's been on my uh, radar for years. But that's one that I, like, after I heard your guys' uh, take of it, it was like, I, I need to see this movie, like, as soon as possible. You do, and that's a masterpiece. Um, mm-hmm. But this that film does that where it brilliantly wears you out and fatigues you because it puts you in the, the central character's shoes. And it's just, it's very draining, much like this is. And like you said, there's a fear and a paranoia that we end up um, inhabiting alongside Letter or with Letter uh, in his role. I have to ask um, you, because this is something that I I struggle with, that I think one of the things that's really interesting about this movie is that there seems to be this almost unspoken, and he never mentions it in the commentary, and it was really, it bummed me out, um, the makeup of the house, how it's essentially empty, seemed to me that it couldn't I know that they they shot in an empty house but the fact that they kind of made it they made no strides to make this look like people actually live comfortably in this home seemed to me like a very political statement almost that like there's this lavish rich home but it's essentially empty inside so almost that this family um like this family that are victims are kind of they're also victims of kind of the same system that produces someone like this it's this kind of empty living, um, empty existence. And I don't, I don't have a lot to go on that with, but like really just, you know, the bed, the mattress on the floor, the, the clothes piled up, um, really just kind of unnerves me. Um, and I don't exactly know how to respond to it. I think, yeah, there definitely was some commentary that maybe we wouldn't, we wouldn't get to hit the nail on the head with, not being Austrian or European at the time, but mm-hmm. I think there is something being said there about a crumbling um, uh, family of uh, of wealth of in some ways, and they're kind of in tatters. And the kind of a gray gardens. I mean, they're not shut ins, but mm-hmm. this kind of crumbling dynasty or not dynasty. I can't think of the word I'm looking for. It's still really early and the morning but um mm-hmm. but i think that you know in the in the ridiculousness of you know putting on airs in a time when clearly it, it's it's things have fallen by the wayside the house is in neglect um the father is gone and one of the things too the, the film looks at is is with the victims and with um or when letters character uh is the absence of the father Mm-hmm. Um, and the impact, I think the domestic impact, or just that it has on all those involved. Um, not, and I don't think it's done from like a chauvinistic standpoint, like the, the father is the savior. I just think mm-hmm. it's the, the family dynamic or the family unit collectively uh, and how it's crumbled a little bit. And I think there was, yeah, from what I, I think I read something somewhere once about some of the things that were being said about the country at the time. And we have uh, a friend coincidentally named Werner who is in, uh, who is Austrian. 
mm-hmm. and could probably speak to uh, some of the the subtext of the film better than I could. But I definitely got the same vibe you did. I think it, clearly it was intentional. This is a man who was in control of the film uh, mm-hmm. with Cargill, but and I think everything he does isn't by chance. Certainly, it seems yeah, it seems so meticulous. Um, you know, I think this movie shares also a lot in common with Funny Games. Um, yeah. It's not, it's not like the most, um, you know, unique thing to say, but I mean, I just think that, I mean, I think that Haneke probably had seen this film. Oh yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I, I think that's what goes without saying he's an Austrian filmmaker, so it probably was on his radar, but you know, a lot of, a lot of what Haneke is trying to say, I think in funny games almost is said here, except, you know, funny games is not really interested in the personal psycho- psychology. So there's, you know, a very clear difference in who we're focusing on. But um, I think in, as far as home invasion films go, these may be two of the best home invasion films ever made. But Yeah. And I think it speaks to, I think both films, see that film is more, um, Haneke's film or Haneke's film is more concerned with kind of pointing the finger in the culpability uh, of the viewer and society mm-hmm. This isn't as concerned with that, um, but I think the way it looks at home invasion and the fear, and I almost wondered this, and I don't know if this was overreaching, because you know, then do I put my tinfoil helmet on when I'm <laughs> when, when I'm viewing things? But, and again, I, I I'm not painting Cargill with the brush of someone uh, as a racist, mm-hmm. but at the time, you know, you saw a, a massive influx of immigrants into countries like Germany, like we talked about with Turkish immigrants and so forth. Is it? Not so much his opinion, but is it his commentary on the fears of the upper middle class and the upper class uh, and the invasion of what they perceive as as these violent people or these barbaric people or or uh, something that's going to disrupt societal norms? Mm-hmm. Who knows? I mean, that's the thing. I think we can see that Cargill is an intelligent filmmaker by the way he handles the material. Um, but regardless, it gives you food for thought because we wouldn't be questioning that or bringing that to the table with some, you know, some low budget kind of uh, slasher film, sorority set slasher film. Mm-hmm. And even good, um, even a lot of times, good home invasion films don't still don't quite get to that that level. Um, no. and there's a lot of home invasion films I really like. I think it's an interesting genre, but I do think, yeah. yeah, I do think that when done well, it could pack an in- incredible punch. And when done poorly, uh, it, yeah, it, it can come off. It's often made in a very much, um, kind of isolationist idea. This, like these others that are in, in, like infiltrating your most like sacred of spaces. Yeah, and when it's done well, yeah, it's it is terrifying because you have mm-hmm. everything to lose, everything to lose. So yeah. we all fear that, you know, that that absolutely. And you know, so it might have been that. It might have just been, yeah. and not even so much, um, you know, immigration, but just the fears of of the upper class towards the lower class. Um, you know, like a, a rat in the in the rich house. You know, mm-hmm. make, yeah infecting people you know killing them uh, who knows again we're reading a lot into it that may or may not have been intended by cargo but the, the one of the parts of the film is is that it invites that i think a little bit with it with the, this the skill and the merit of the film yeah and then like one last thing about that actually going back the funny the interesting thing about the movie is the way that cargo sets it up is almost 
two home invasions because I think that when Kay enters his home, he kind of takes it in as his own. And then when the family returns to their own home, he feels as if they're invaded his space. Yes. So it's this weird kind of dual invasion. Um, but neither are seem there with the intention of invading someone else's space, like with a kind of intentional manner. But it's um, at that point, it just turns into completely like animalistic urges that drive the rest of the film, um, which makes this movie so much more kind of unnerving because the motive isn't always fixed. That's right. And you know what? Yeah. Uh, sorry, I was going to try to shoehorn because you said neither invasion. I was going to say neither invasion is invasion USA, but <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think you're right on. I think you're right on for sure. And that's an interesting point about the invasion within an invasion yeah. perceived, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that works well. That works well. Uh, anything else you got? I guess to wrap up my notes. Um two things one small one i like the use of the dog to kind of break up the tension um it's adorable uh it did i i commented recently um uh when josh posted about watching the movie that the entire first time i watched this movie i was like almost and this is a sign of me how much i love dogs is i was i was almost more i knew the humans were gonna suffer uh, and I was just hoping the dog wasn't going to suffer as well, which yeah. maybe is, is terrible on my end. But oh, no, he's a dog lover. You know, you don't yeah. want to see the dog be poorly done too. Uh-huh. Absolutely. But and then uh, yeah, and then the last thing was just the the th- the real strength of this movie, the un kind of unsung strength that I have not talked about at all is the sound design. And man, think- <laughs> yeah, totally. I was going to mention that it is yeah. first rate. Yeah, and the the key point of that is the disgusting Ugh. eating of the sausage, which may actually be the the grossest thing I've ever seen in cinema ever. It's so gross because you hear his teeth break the skin, the casing on the sausage. As oh, he's my God. It. It's, <laughs> it's so gross. I mean, because he's got, like, those vampire-y teeth. Oh, my God. And the way it's shot, it's so close. You actually Ugh. see, like, the fat in the sausage, uh, like, crushing in his teeth. It's It's so weird. And, yeah, it goes to show the power of Cargill as a filmmaker that he can make eating a sausage such a repulsive act. And for me, I love eating sausage. It's yeah, it should be quite sausage. pleasurable. It should be pleasurable, right? And then, you uh-huh. know, um, but he makes it just a repulsive act that almost seems um, – it seems fitting in kind of like – from the standpoint of our characters like this, almost like a cannibal in some ways. And it's just, mm-hmm. yeah, no, it, it's, it's fantastic. The sound design is tremendous. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll shoot it over to you. I think that's most of my notes. Cool. Cool. Okay. So yeah, I had often said when people wanted the quick sell version of this, I called it sort of the European colder, more technically savvy or technique, technically impressive, uh, Henry, serial killer. So I think that's kind of the quick the quick sell that I've always said. Um, I've only seen the film three times in my life. Once, uh, you know, five, six years ago, once on the big screen and earlier in the summer, and then now. Um, it's a film that will always stick with me my whole life. Mm-hmm. And I don't think – I own it, and I'm happy to own it, but I don't know how much I'll watch it because it, it does really pack a punch. Um, thankfully, though, as we'd said – what separates it is the technical merits and because of the technical merits, I could detach a little bit and watch it and marvel at it from a technical standpoint. Um, but that's a double edged sword because then they also enhance the horror of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, and it just the sound design is so impressive with everything, whether it's early on, like the dripping of water at the prison and how that must have been this incessant noise, the clacking of the the shoes or the boots on like the the floor or the, mm-hmm. the, the cobblestone, the keys jangling. Um, and I think all of those, those sounds do a good job invading our space in the way that they would have invaded letter space, making him more kind of raw and almost like an insect in the brain, which, you know, can add to his condition. Um, so yeah, it, it does work very, very well. Um, sorry, I had a big yawn in me there. Um, what do we got here? I think the thing I find most terrific about being inside the mind of him is the excitement he has to kill. Mm hmm. And it's conveyed in such a way like every if it feels like every fiber of his being like he even talks about this in the film when he's in prison, all he can think about is is killing. And it just it excites him to no end. And just the way it's it's um we see it on screen, it's it's terrifying to think that you know, he's fantasized about inflicting this um this act and, and how he's gonna do it and how he's able to kind of pass through therapy by just talking about how he always sees flowers in his dreams and things like that. But just he, this guy knows, see prison is meant to be a deterrent for committing crime Mm -hmm. for him. He looks at it as as an unfortunate side effect for getting to do what he wants. And he's only going to get to do it one or two more times in his life. He feels like despite knowing that he's going to be locked away for years and years and years, he's willing to commit that act because it excites him. And means so much to him, mm-hmm. which is a terrifying prospect in the real world, because you get moments in the film and he just looks like this kind of weird kind of twitchy, skeevy guy when you see him out in public. We've all seen people like this. And the prospect of what that person is capable of and we have no idea uh, is terrifying because it could be anyone. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think they, you know, Carl does a good job of, of illustrating that. Um, it talks about his childhood and how it was an awful childhood. It seems to be a pattern with killers. It's not always the case, as we've seen in some pretty sensational trials mm-hmm. over the years. But, um, you know, with Ed Gein, it was, you know, evident who was kind of who the the real, I think Nisik was his name, as I'd said, was based on. And just, you know, we hear, you hear about the horrific abuse that Letters character suffers. And it's not done to give us justification at all, but I just think it, it's kind of stated as he's talking about his first murder. And he talks about seeing the fear in his mother's eyes and the knife in her chest. Mm-hmm. And I think that sets the tone for the sickness he has because what happens is at that moment, he associates... And I'm playing armchair therapist here. He associates uh, that breaking of the chains that made him miserable with murder. Mm-hmm. And also as a byproduct of his mother's relationship with him, he has a terrible relationship with women. He looks at them as, as being, you know, monsters. So a lot of times, you know, he's looking for women to kill mm-hmm. because they're, they are his mother. They're cut from the same cloth. 
So, but again, he doesn't, Carl doesn't spend a lot of time on this, but it is, it is certainly telling. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Um, and I guess like the interesting thing I would say, you know, in response to that is that a lot of, um, the quotes from the movie were loosely taken from a series of conversations between, and I'm blanking on the actual serial killer. Basic, I think. It may be that one. And it, it, I, cause I don't think it's actually the one that this case is pr- primarily based on. It's another one. It might be. Oh. The Vampire of Dusseldorf. Uh, oh, yes, yes, yes. The Vampire of Dusseldorf. That's right. Yeah. It may be that one, but he, he took a lot of um, the inner dialogue from actual quotes from uh, th- that person and his psychologist. Just um, terrifying. Yeah. So he, he, he said they're not exact quotes, but they're often inspired by. So I think that a lot of, you know, you mentioned that, you know, it's it's a pattern. And I think the reason that is is because a lot of this is based on kind of the actual inner workings of a real murderer who would behave like this. So a lot of yeah. this is, feels very, very true to life. It does. And just like the way we really, we see him shaking with anticipation. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost like a guy who's getting ready to get like his first blow job, like, <laughs> or whatever, whatever your proclivity or your act is, you mm-hmm. know, just the way he's just quivering with anticipation. Uh, two weeks in a row, we've talked about a quiver on this show. Last week was the beast and a quiver of a different kind. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, and, you know, one thing we haven't mentioned yet, and uh, I want to talk about, because we talked about the sound of the film, but we didn't talk about the score for the film. Yeah, surprisingly with me. <laughs> yeah, man, yeah. So Klaus Schultz uh, of Tangerine Dream uh, scored this film. Composed the the score for this film. Now this is a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous score. A few pieces feel very, very period with some of their like, um, kind of like the like the drum machine kind of keyboard stuff. Mm-hmm. That like that main kind of theme. But all the music in the film just enhances the moment and the mood so well. Like this is a masterful score that I almost don't want to own because I don't want it to like down like put me in like a bummer when I'm listening to it at home. You know, but put you, put you in a rage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's really, really good stuff. It's yeah. I mean, it's it, it's funny because at times it feels extremely cheap, uh, yeah. but it works so well in the film, and um, it makes sense that it was Tangerine Dream people. Like it, it totally works. But I agree, the drum machine almost sounds like a Casio keyboard drum machine at yeah. times. But I don't know something about that. The way that the way that Cargo uses it. Um, to know that it was only the whole score was only made in one day that he, he did the whole score in one day. Like everything about it is really fa- is like fascinating. You know, the music too, that I think might work the strongest is just kind of, the only way I can describe it is sort of this music boxy kind of haunting piece that's used a few times in the film. Mm-hmm. It works well too, because you think of, you know, the fantasy and fairy tale and also it's got a very dark foreboding feeling, especially when we know as a view, the viewer, what's going to be, what's going to be seen in the screen. Um, we see a few attempts too, and this is one of the things I like about the violence is there's a few feeble attempts by uh, Letter's character to to commit murder. Like there's the moment with the the female taxi driver, mm-hmm. and you know we just see he's kind of feeble, and and I think the problem is is that when he botches something like that, it just makes him more angry towards women and more fuels his feelings of inadequacy and anger. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you get, you get the sense that he's not good at this. Um, no. He's he's completely driven by urge, and it, he can't think, so he's he's absolutely actually a terrible mur- He's a, I mean, I, this seems weird to say, but he's a terrible murderer. Like, he doesn't plan at all. It just, like, happens. Yeah, he's not a natural, that's for sure. And mm-hmm. um, what was I going to say on that? I don't know now. But uh, yeah, no, he's he's totally yeah he's totally inept. Uh, that, well, not inept, but he's not a well-oiled machine, um, which you know works well. I also think one of the things that works well. I don't know if it just worked out this way or it was intended, but the time of year it's shot, it feels like late, late, late fall or early, early, early spring or sort of midwinter. I don't I know Austria is cold, um, but it's very gray. There's leaves on the ground. The trees are barren of any – it's devoid of – and unlike our next film, which is sort of sumptuous and uh, there's a lot of foliage and, and mm-hmm. vibrancy through that. And it's interesting, you know, now that I think about having programmed these two films together, what an interesting double. Because one is so female-centric and, and is a world inhabited only by women – and one, we are inside the world of a man whose hatred for women thrusts him forward into some horrific acts. Mm-hmm. Wow, I never really realized that. Um, but yeah, I think the see, like the time this film is shot, really enhances the mood of the film. Man, I got so many notes. I got to blow through these. Um, I think the killings in this film are just. They're so awful, and there's something very stark and real about them. Like one of the the victims is uh, a mentally and physically challenged man. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's wheelchair bound and he's severely sort of mentally challenged. And the, one of the things that makes it even more awful is because there's an absence of the father in the house. Um. There's a few moments when this this young man sees letter in the house and he says Papa, and you know he thinks it's like his dad and mm-hmm. um, it's a pretty it's pretty awful when as the the this man's not a spoiler this man's getting killed you know it's like he thinks it's his father it's such a horrible like notion to think of yeah I think that's. His the treatment of that character is very depressing. Um, I mean, not that it's any more or less depressing than the other characters, but I think just the sheer fact of his incap- incapacitation uh, mm-hmm. is uh, incap- he's, that he's incapacitated is uh, is really is is just harrowing. And the odd thing is, the movie almost seems that like he has no interest in killing this character. He just has to out of out of necessity. Um, but he really seems far more excited about killing women, which, you know, obviously, as you said, makes sense. Yeah. No, it definitely does. Um, and when you see that, like, Mercedes-Benz pull in and, you know, the, the mother and daughter get out, and uh, we just do get that creeping feeling of dread. Because uh, mm-hmm. we know it's just going to be... And everything's just so messy and awful about the proceedings. Like, you know, the 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 man in the wheelchair, the girl gets kind of dragged around the room, a carpeted room. And, and I think the one thing I'd never realized the first two few times I watched this was how well-timed some of the confessional stuff from letters character is as he's killing the, 
um, the mother and daughter because as he's killing the mother in his head, we hear him talking about his own mother mm-hmm. and how awful she was. And so I guess fueling him, it's, you know, you know, it's just, you know, his rage. And then the same thing with the daughter, cause he had a sister. He says, my mother always favored my sister and she got this and she got that as he's, he's, um, he's brutalizing the, the sister. Um, I didn't realize he had really timed it that way before. You know, another thing that is kind of a weird quirk of the film that works really well for me is again, to talk about Stark, it's so awful when he kills the mother because this mother character has like this weird pancake makeup on. I know. And she's got these dark eyebrows and red lipstick and it's, it just, you know, she's got these false teeth that come out and it's, it's really gross. And I don't mean that in a crass way. I just mean the whole thing's very stark and kind of awful. And it seems intentionally grotesque. I mean, it, it is. Yeah. Seems, that, that's a better way to put it. Not gross, yeah. but it is grotesque. Absolutely. She seems to be a character out of a one of um like a fastbender film, like a totally. one of his more esoteric films. Um and it is just that idea that there's something off about this bourgeois reality that's not really like intend it not in it's it's intended totally, but it's not in it's not explicit what's off. It's just there's hints that this isn't what we expect out of like this kind of makeup. Yeah, no, right on. And I think, too, the way she's – that's a really brave performance by an older actress because mm-hmm. she gets kind of dumped unceremoniously. Her shirt's up. Her stomach's hanging out. You know, she's made to have these eyebrows overgrown and this, you know, like some pancake makeup and red lipstick and her teeth come out. Very unglamorous turn by her. But it's very effective in the film. You don't get that sort of thing too often with films unless it's really reveling in the muck. And then at that point, reveling in the muck allows the muck to lose its power. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a moment in here where I wonder if the filmmakers that made Amer were influenced by, and it was the moment in Amer when the teeth run along the metal, because there's a moment when the daughter's oh, teeth run yeah. along the metal. So I just have uh, to wonder about that. I didn't think about that. That make, that's a that's a good point. Because he makes a point to really highlight that moment where her teeth mm-hmm. just grate along the metal. Um, which again, being European filmmakers, I have to think they've seen this. I would imagine so. Um, what else do we got here? Yeah, there's a moment in a or there's a scene in a kind of underground concrete corridor that is just so awful. It's so awful it made me queasy. Mm-hmm. And ooh, it just it's <laughs> that scene is probably like one of the most effective uses of blood that i've ever seen on film too i mean it's a little it's a little poorly done at times but it's very 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 much so like i mean just visceral uh is the best word that i can describe it so visceral and cargill does a great thing where there's blood loss you see how pale the bodies have come oh my god yeah and it really punctuates the horror of the moment. Mm-hmm. And I think it also adds to there's moments – and there's that, that cover for the film. I don't even like looking at this cover. It's underneath the slip cover where Letter's face is covered in blood mm-hmm. and his mouth's open. It's just such a – it's so awful. And I feel like um, there's moments when his face is covered in blood. It's really, again, very sort of vampiric. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, – that's yeah an awful 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 scene and 
you know, the film was long, and I only have a few more notes here, but again, to talk about how inept or inadequate or feeble letter is, there's a moment when he gets in the, in the car to get away. What he wants to accomplish is just so awful. He's done something, he's, he's in the trunk of the car, and, you know, he has this plan, and it's just so awful, but... It shows how feeble he is in execution. Like he rear-ends the, these old women or something <laughs> in a Mercedes, uh-huh. and these these kids in these yellow rain slickers are surrounding the car because they don't know anybody. They just think some dudes rear-ended someone, and they're like this classroom that's cl- crossing the street, and they're peering in the car. Uh, Cargill does a really great job, I think, of it in that moment. And we should say the I think the French title is schizophrenia for this, which no way comments mm-hmm. on. In the moment, I feel like it, it also really allows us to inhabit the world of of uh, the letter character because for some reason, there's a lot of paranoia and fear in that moment and it's palpable for letter's character. And all it is is a bunch of raincoat-wearing school children and some old women looking in the window of his car. But we feel kind of the fear of that moment. Absolutely. It's like he's being stalked by them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's no resting, which is partially what makes him compelled to do what he does. Mm-hmm. We feel like, um, so yeah, then he shows back up at the, uh, the diner and he's Joe cool, but, uh, you know, <laughs> not quite. And, uh, we're in that, we're in that awesome white, uh, monkey suit. Yeah. He's got that white. Yeah, man. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, uh, of course being Austrian close to German, uh, police, they asked to see his papers. And uh, <laughs> he, he can't produce them, you know. So oh, too bad, Sam. <laughs> yeah. So he doesn't get to show his papers, and <laughs> that that culminates with a really fantastic scene and a really beautifully shot scene, um, with the camera pulling up, 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 and just the anticipation and the reaction shots when the trunk is opened, and he's mm-hmm. just he's just waiting with his mouth open to see the reactions, and he's going to savor that moment. Like a person savors a fine meal his whole life, you know, and it's just a powerful, powerful scene. So anyway, those are all my notes. Mm-hmm. I would like to make one quick correction. I said that it was Letter's voice, but actually, I think it was Robert uh, Hunger Bueller's voice that actually did all the voiceover. Mm, and I would, if I may, I'm going to correct you. I think that uh, Robert Hunger Bueller, Bueller only did the voice at the end when it talked about. Oh, do you know that? There's I, a, Secret yes, yeah, I, yeah, I thought that was, but I, I thought it was so strange that he got top billing. Um, I, it might have sometimes the way people bill things, though. It's yeah, just, you know, there's no rhyme or reason. I've seen it done alphabetically. I've seen it done mm-hmm. a number that's of true. ways. Yeah, so like I couldn't. That, I, that's why I didn't say it at first because I actually thought originally that it was the the doctor's voice at the end. It but, does. Yeah, that's what I think it is. And again, I could be wrong, but I'm going to assume. You know, it could make sense, though, because it could also be um, – because the, the prologue that they probably originally intended to have at the beginning has that doctor as well. So, so it could be that yeah. that was why it was top-billed because it actually appears early on, too. If I may say something, too, and this is so – it's going to almost, in, in, in the light of the review, sound shallow. But I felt like the daughter, when she had her big glasses on, was really cute. No, she is really – she is really pretty. And, you know, it kind of makes it even worse. Again, like this flower, this beautiful flower getting just, uh, you know. And even the taxi driver, she kind of looked like a, like a Germanic or Austrian Helen Mirren woman taxi driver. Mm-hmm. You know, but 
Don't feel too bad, though, because I was on Facebook or something reading someone's reaction to this movie, and someone actually put, she looked real good tied up against the door, and I was just like, like, oh, you don't say that. Even if you think that, you don't say that. Yeah, I mean, and I I don't mean that in the context of what people want to do within the boundaries of their own own home and consent, but but this was the opposite of consensual, so... We're going to get into a whole lot of consensual quirkiness, uh, kinkiness in a second. We sure are, yeah. So let's uh, let's see what you got for make or breaks, MVTs, and all that. All right, I really struggled on um, both the MVT and the make or break, but if I have to go with a an M, with a make or break, it's going to be. I'm going to go. This is a weird one. Uh, it's not my favorite scene in the film, but I'm going to go with right after. All of the death has happened. Um, Cargill does the only time cut, and we jump to the dog for a few seconds, and it almost gives us this break and allows us to reset, um, which will then go into the end of the film, because I think had he not given us that split break, this movie would have been too much anxiety, and I don't know if I could... like. I think rewatching it would be harder than it already is, because... There's no let up, but here at least he gives us this quite this quick moment to breathe, where we're, we're we're able to kind of separate from all of the disgustingness for one second and kind of just see something not so horrible. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think it really make it really unifies the film. Um, MVT, I'm gonna go with. I could go with big. I could go with cargo, but I'm gonna go with the technical. Can- I'm just gonna go with the cinematography as a technical kind of merit um just because i don't think it was all or one i think that it 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 was very much the synthesis between the actual construction of these devices that they made they had like the, the whole movie was shot with mirrors i don't know if you know that yeah and they said it made it difficult at times to shoot yeah so there's that there's the actual construction of all these different devices these rope systems and these uh the steel contraptions all sorts of shit for the camera work yeah yeah, so I think that there's a lot of people that came together to make this kind of movie technically possible, and I th- I can't really give it to any one person, so I'm going to give it to all of them as a unit. Uh, and then as a score, despite the fact that I agree with you, I don't know how many times I could watch this movie. I think intellectually I could watch it a lot, but it's so draining that it might not be you know a go-to for me, but I think I'm still going to give it a 9... nine you know, I'll just give it a, st- a solid nine out of ten. I like. Nice. I think it's. I think it's a brilliant film. I think that it probably does get unfairly classified as an exploitation film a lot, but it's it's really not exploitation at all. I mean, there's nothing. Ex- I don't think there's really much in- exploitative about it. Agreed. Agreed. Um, make or break. Again, I could go with so many scenes. I don't think there's a bad scene in this film. I think it's a you know pretty flawless film in a lot of ways. Um, but I think the moment when the horror, like there's so much awful stuff in this film, the moment in the, the underground kind of walkway um, elevates the horror. And again, in a weird way, reminds me of a very visceral scene in like um, possession mm-hmm. with uh, Isabella Johnny. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so that scene, it somehow manages to go even deeper and darker my MVT, I struggle with this too, and I'm going to use this such a cheat with this, but I'm going to say everyone involved in the production of this film, mm-hmm. because I feel like the technical stuff is as good as anything made, you know, in any film. Like it, it's just 
it's so good. Um, specifically, cinematography. You know, it's probably the the thing, and then the you know the score and you know the direction, the writing. I mean, it's all there. The device of um, the voiceover, and even Cargo says he doesn't really like voiceover because it use a lot of people would use it as a crutch if they don't trust what they can put on screen. But I think it enhances the experience of being inside the head of the killer here. Um, so I'm just going to go there and then letter and company, the cast has to pull it off. The, the mother, older woman in the film has to be brave. The, the other man, uh, the, the, the son or the brother in the wheelchair has to commit to a really unglamorous role as well. And, you know, the daughter's very in a very physical role. So, mm-hmm. and you know, letter himself. Um, so I'm going to give it to everyone involved in this because like you said, it's, it's a synthesis. And my score is just a touch, touch, touch below yours. It's an 8.75 out of 10. This is as powerful a quote-unquote horror film as I think has been made for me, for my money. Um, and if you want to watch it as a visceral experience, you can. If you want to watch it as a technical marvel, you can. And I'm glad that we finally got to talk about this film because for a lot of years I've wanted to sing its praises on the show, but I wanted to wait for it, wait and wait and wait and hope it got a good release and it finally has. So mm-hmm. people get out there and support it and buy this film because it, it deserves your money. Yeah, I think it's a great. We didn't talk too much about the package, but it's a great package. It's it got a, a great package. Really nice book. I mean, some of the features are ported over from the DVD. I had been. I talked to Will about that, but I think that a lot of people probably don't have that DVD, so it's great to have. Um, if you are a fan of Necromantic, uh, Jorg, I yeah, Jorg Bootkarait or something. Yeah, he does a really great interview actually with Cargill on it, which um, actually, you know, as much as I had said, like I. I'm so conflicted on what, like, you know, how I feel about wanting to go into Necromantic because I still haven't seen it. Um, actually, makes me want to watch it a little more because he's he's clearly a very bright filmmaker. Um, uh, so he makes a very dark film. He makes very dark films, but I think he he's not he's not a dummy. Like he's coming from a good place, so maybe I take the jump. You can here. find that, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, that's good. Yeah, it is a good package. So, with that being said, we are going to jump out of Austria and into England, I guess, um, presumably. And Hungary. And Hungary, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So, uh, we will be right back. If you like westerns, comedies, foreign films, horror movies, action adventure, and classic cinema. Well, we don't have much of that, but if you like ass, titties, farting, burping, puffy nipples, poop, taboo porn, muffin tops, comic books, wrestling, mustaches, pie smashed on butts, cheese, taking baths, butt sex, gagging, milk, and the American flag, check out the Silva and Gold Podcast. We're the morons your mom warned you about while she was sitting on Silver and Gold. We talk about movies and shit. Find us on iTunes or silverandgold.com.
shift gears here thankfully and get out of the uh the head of uh Roman letter and into the minds of uh well the mind of strickland certainly and then of course uh beyond that uh chiara danna and uh sid sinudsen the uh the female leads in um the duke of burgundy mm-hmm. um do you have imdb opened I do, yes. You want to synopsize this film and I'll yeah, sure. Roll. Um, let me read it over real quick. Yeah, I think that's that. There's nothing spoilery in here. No. A woman who studies butterflies and moths tests the limits of her relationship with her lesbian lover. Yeah, I guess that kind of. I don't know. That's kind of on the surface. Um, what it is? Uh, yeah, it's the it's the sexy kind of byline that you can give. I guess that without you know highlighting too much the kind of uh sadomasochistic tendencies of the film which might not draw people in the weird thing this this film and i think is one of the things that i really adore about strickland mm-hmm. uh is that i and i've said it and i think in the opening i, I for my money um i don't think I, I would say he's probably in my top 10 favorite working filmmakers on the strength of the two of his films i've seen mm. not to spoil things but I mean, I I would probably agree. I think that I I'd love to see more movies by him. Um, so we'll see. But I I can't imagine him at the end of his career having any bad films. I just I don't see that ever happening. He seems to be he seems to know how to make the films he want to makes he wants to make for a reasonable enough amount of money. So he gets hands off and allow and is basically able to do what he wants. And that's the mark of a lot of the filmmakers we really love. And we've talked mm-hmm. about it with Nicholas Winding Refn before, mm-hmm. where he has been able to find the sweet spot between how much money <laughs> the backers will give him and how hands-off they are. And mm-hmm. Strickland mentions that in the interview with him on the disc, how he made sure to shoot this money for a low enough cost that everyone was hands-off and allowed him to make the film he want, which means we're seeing the art that he mm-hmm. wants and the film he wants on the screen. What we see on the screen is what the director intended without interference. When you get sort of a purity of vision and execution, um, I think it's a great thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really great thing. Um, now, this is uh, an esoteric film. <laughs> Strickland's an esoteric filmmaker, I feel like. Yeah. Um, so I'll preface this by saying this film certainly isn't for everyone even in our community where people tend to have uh 
a wide variety of tastes. Um, this film is going to work wonderfully for some. Mm-hmm. Some are going to fucking despise it because it's just they either won't find anything in it. Um, but and that's fine, you know, to each their own. But uh, and you and I spoke about this off the air a moment ago. The problem with a film like this in terms of being financially prosperous is how, how do you market this film? How, you know, I mean, I think I think there is a way and I think it was mismanaged um, to get into the business of it too much. But I think it is you have to get someone who knows how to sell it because I don't, I don't think it's an easy sell. No, and I think the only way to sell it is misleading, and I think that maybe Strickland was aware of that, and maybe he pushed against it. Because, I mean, the easy sell would be to sell this as a sexy, like, lesbian film, but it's yeah. it's not really. I mean, like, no. I mean, he, a lot of people might will probably find this movie kind of sexy. Uh, I'm not one of them. I didn't think it was very. I don't. I don't. I think it's intentionally. Um, strangely avoiding eroticism in a lot of ways, but um, it's kind of psychologically um, a sexy film. I think it's a sensual film, and I do think it's a sexy... Well, I think it's more sensual than sexual, but I also think it looks at the absurdity and the impracticality (laughs) of human desire and how relationships can sometimes have bumps in the road to the sensuality of the human being um, and the impracticalities day-to-day of and the nuts and bolts of relationships and how sexuality and relationships um, can be impacted, I guess, by day-to-day mm-hmm. life. Um, interestingly, on the disc, um, Strickland mentions how this came to be, because I was very curious about that, too. It's it's very – there's no other film like this that I can think of. No, I'd agree with you. I mean, there's movies that are that this movie's clearly like referencing, but they're nothing. They're actually absolutely nothing like this. But whereas we can't say that too much, you know, to say this film's kind of a unique beast, you know, it's just testament to Strickland. And he had said that the the seed from this film came from a friend or a producer, or someone approaching him to uh, to remake. Jess Franco's Lorna the Exorcist. And he said, well, you know, first he was kind of excited about it and just mm-hmm. kind of Euro kind of Euro sleaze kind of thing. And because he very clearly has been influenced by a lot of the Euro cult films, be it Jally, be it uh, Jess Franco, Jean Roland. Mm-hmm. Um, he's very clearly been influenced by them, but he makes it very much his own. Very much, without mm-hmm. a lot of heavy-handed nods to that scene, that moment, that you know, that Easter egg of sorts with those films. So some filmmakers try as they might, can't help but put in their films. Um, but yeah, so Jess Franco directed *Lone of the Exorcist* under the uh, the name Clifford Brown. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I've never seen *Lone of the Exorcist*. Uh, I should say, have you seen it? No, I, I've I've only seen a very select few uh, Franco films. Um, hasn't always been my uh, bag, but he's someone that I'd wanna, I want to. I always say I want to kind of catch up on more, but I just it's always on my back burner. Yeah, he's made a few. Yeah, he's typically not my bag. I've, you know, Sammy and I have joked about him and Roland being king of the screenshots. I've definitely warmed up more to Roland as of as I've gone along. And Franco has some cool stuff in his filmography, but again, mileage will vary. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But uh, regardless, that's where this sort of came from. Now, as we said, this is our second Strickland film on the show out of three. I'll probably try to run down his third film as well uh, at this point. Um, when we have time, just, you know, because I, I think I'd, I'd like to do that. Um, but what what do you can this film be classified in, under the confines of a genre? Can we classify it? I mean, what do you call it? <laughs> do we need to I mean, yeah, I don't know. What, I, I guess, like, it would be, in a sense, a drama is, is, the, best, <laughs> is the best, like, classification that doesn't break. But, you know, if people want to say it's a sexploitation film, in all, in all honesty, I think it kind of can be considered that because it's, it plays so intricately with the uh, banality of um, this kind of living that yes. all of, like it doesn't highlight the sex. It highlights more like all of the process it takes to actually make this work. That's um, right. So I think that, you know, it fits in that genre, but it's just not going to give you what you want from that genre. A lot of times. Exactly. Well, exactly. I would agree with that. Yeah. 100%, but it, it is hard to, yeah. where do you put it? A blockbuster, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is to sexploitation. What uh barbarian is to Gialli, like yeah. Gialli, like it's, I would say it's, so. It's it knows it's in that world, but it's actually more commenting on that world than it is actually doing it. And yeah, and I think some of the impracticalities, and in some ways you could look at it as meta. Like mm-hmm. we're a bit getting sold, um, you know, in a lot of ways when you see sexploitation films and things of that nature, um, you're getting kind of this bill of goods as one thing. But what about the behind the curtains to get to that scene? Mm-hmm. This shows us that. Um, so, you know, so sorry, I'm just kind of stumbling around here. Uh, one of the things I like about Strickland as a filmmaker, and again, film is a subjective thing, as with any art, as we always say, but I love how ornate his films are. And this film's really ornate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, in some ways it's a challenging film, like, not too often when we review the show do I think, well, what am I going to talk about here? I think there's a lot to chew on here and a lot to process. But I think that Strickland, again, is conscious of the fact that he wants to make films the way he wants to make them. And he's not trying to cater to or pander to anyone. He just wants to make the film as a very clear vision about the way he wants to do it. Now, as much as I'd said these films were uh, sort of sexploitation in some ways, they do for a very, like, especially with some of the score. And it's Cat's Eye, I believe, that did the score for the film. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not overly familiar with Cat's Eye other than um, uh, this film. Are you familiar with Cat's Eye otherwise? No, I don't know much about them. Um, I love the score. Like, I think it's, I think it's amazing. It um, is. But I'm not sure. It's one of those things. It's like, I love the score, but I'm not sure, like, if they're like you know if they're a band or whatever like if i would love the band quite as much um i don't know why that is but yeah it's a pop they're a pop duo um looks like they're english yeah um but uh, they're cool they're good and early on with some of like the bicycle scenes i mean it kind of reminded me of solange a little bit what have you done the solange with that opening and stuff but it's very kind of folksy you mentioned uh, wicker man i feel it's very folksy british horror in that way uh, that's one of my notes actually is like i i after watching wicker man just a few days ago i re-watching this i'm like oh man like it seems you know it seems to be striking up that emotion which works because in a lot of ways like wicker man this is like a 
isolated community that makes their own rules. Um, and I think it almost sets that up with, like, that's almost Strickland's way of telling us that. Like, it's like, oh, you remember how Wicker Man was? Like, this is going to have a similar kind of, like, internal logic to it. Yeah, and I think there's a there's a, an earthiness and an organic feel with a lot of that, that 60s and 70s folksy kind of British horror that is definitely evident here. This is a very lush film. And I'm not smart enough to connect all the dots, but I feel like this film is all female. There's there isn't a male to be seen in the film, which you know works perfectly fine for me. Um, but I have and I can't quite verbalize it. But I feel like we see so much um, shrubbery and there's so much life in this film, uh, be it through plants, insects earth it's an earthy film i think there's a direct correlation between that and there being an all-female cast because females are the givers of life and again i can't quite say this in a brilliant way that i'd like to but i see what strickland's going for there at least what i think he's going for and it works very well for me Mm -hmm. i think it's weird i i i agree with you i think that there's a lot there and then i all i it's it's strange when he talks about kind of some of the the stuff because he's like, I mean obviously he wanted it, but they also um, a lot of the a lot of the earthy visuals were improvised. They just went out in the woods and were just kind of grabbing stuff, and then he was going through the edit it, edit and like finding what he thought worked. So it's funny. There's a lot of I think happy accidents too. Um, yeah, which is which is great. But I think obviously he had his crew go out into the woods to shoot that. So it was it was implied that he wanted it. Um, woods, he wanted woodsy stuff and yeah. it happened to actually work as effectively as maybe he had intended or more effectively than he intended. Mm-hmm. You know what's crazy is looking at the cinematographer. He's been uh, a DOP since 68, so he's an older gentleman. He's done so much TV work. I don't he's no Nick Nolan's his name and I want to give him credit here because this is a sumptuous, beautiful film. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a feast. It's a real visual feast. Uh, it's a very tactile film. Um, and I couldn't wait to see this on Blu-ray after I'd first seen it. Um, but he hasn't done, it seems like, just through a quick glance, anything. Like, he doesn't have a lot of calling cards. It's not like he's, you know, Deacons or these guys that you could name off a bunch of films that he's done. He's done a lot of TV work and and whatnot, and it's a real shame because now he's shot Barbarian in this, and through those two films, they're, they're, just, they're beautiful to look at, which, you know, is partially Strickland, of course, but it's also, Nolan has to be credit, give him credit, too, and yeah, it's kind of odd, he doesn't have a whole lot going on, uh, film-wise, more of a TV guy. Yeah, hey, I mean, he did Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, though, so... That's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Um... But yeah, I mean, I think Barbarian and this are testaments to his skill. Uh, he should be working. Um, maybe he will now. We'll see. Because I've seen films that, and, and you know, it's easy to, I think, to say Strickland is, well, yeah, but it's all Strickland's show here. But I think that's unfair and it's selling Nick Nolan short because, for example, not to discredit this film or these filmmakers, but you know the film Spring? Have you seen that? Yes, I did. Spring, I feel like, is a good-looking film, but I feel like with a master cinematographer, it could have been a gorgeous film. Mm-hmm. It so, felt, um, yeah, Spring, my problem with Spring, I think, is it felt overly uh, color-corrected. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair statement, I think, whereas I think in it with a steadier hand, 
not a steadier hand in terms of cinematography, but maybe the cinematographer wasn't as old. Or maybe the direction wasn't, I don't know, who knows, but I don't feel that film is as beautiful as it could have been necessarily. Well, it's still a good looking film. Certainly. Um, there's another film where sound design really plays into, you know, plays in here much like our last film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, an interesting note because I can't help but lump Strickland in with Ben Wheatley because they're both fascinating British filmmakers who consciously or subconsciously, I feel like refuse to be pigeonholed. They make the films they want to make and they're very different and they're bizarre, but they're really, really, and Wheatley's hit or miss for me. I'll be the first to admit that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think he's a tremendous talent and he was an executive producer on this, which as I was about to, literally about to write the note, um, so far, I tend to prefer Strickland to Wheatley. Mm-hmm. I saw Wheatley's name pop up. And you don't have to choose, but I couldn't help but compare them as British filmmakers over the same generation. And who sort of, I think, are influenced by genre film in some ways. I agree. Uh, I think that's uh, apt. I think I also think they're probably two of the freshest, even though I also I'm I'm not as experienced with Wheatley. I need to catch up on a lot of Wheatley. But, you know, um Kill List I liked, but it didn't wow me like I think I expected it to, but I think it will after more watches. But um, I still think that he's one of the most interesting filmmakers working today. Yeah, he totally is. He totally is. Um, Another thing I like about this world we're in is it's never like some like if you get you got a filmmaker like Edgar Wright or someone who tends to be a little showier, and that's fine if that's your thing, certainly. You know, Roy Wright's a talented filmmaker too, but I feel like, again, some of the stuff would be more on the nose about this being an all-female society. We're never given any explanation. We don't need it. It doesn't really matter what the explanation is. It's a world inhabited by females. And like we said, it's a very lush. It's very scholarly, very orderly, very uh, polite society. And it's kind of refreshing to not see a world with like Lord Humongous is running around going, gasoline, <laughs> you know, it's just hard, concrete, kind of like awful, violent, you know, it's... Uh, it's nice and it's very floral and it works quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, what were you going to say? Oh, um, I mean, a side note for that, I think a lot of that has to do with the originally when Strickland wrote the film, he had male characters. They just weren't important. And he just decided to change them to female characters. Like there would be like men working. There would be like men at the like conference or something. And he just took them out uh, and didn't. I think that he's just like, I could take them out of my script, not make any notion of it and here we have this film that now has this alternate kind of reality but i don't have to ever touch on it it still works as a film and i and to be honest i prefer it this way i 100 i think it i I think it only i think it really works as well as it does because of that yeah no i would agree with that Mm -hmm. watching this film for the first time I realized that I had more of a, a clothing and lingerie fetish than than maybe I originally would have thought, um, which, you know, uh, I've always been a clothes horse. Uh, I had to cut things down when I got married and had kids, um, mm-hmm. certainly. So, you know, uh, my days of buying uh, more fashionable stuff kind of gone out the window. But again, the film is very tactile and the you know there's a lot of satin in this film uh i think the costume design and the set decoration i want to give you know credit where it's due here uh andrea flesh did the costume design and uh zusa mihalik did the set set direction both Mm -hmm. are first and production design peter sparrow all of it is is fantastic it really works well it really feel like we're in this world without 
feeling like we're being actively pulled into a world by Strickland. Mm-hmm. So it works pretty well. But And I think, too, um, you know, we talked about this kind of the impracticalities, big picture sometimes, or not the impractical, well, trying to make do despite the impracticalities in terms of role playing and the roles we play in our more intimate moments, but also the roles we play in our day-to-day moments in relationships and the push and pull of relationships, I think is really examined in this film uh, in some ways. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would agree with that. I mean, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Just you can continue. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, there's some, some great voyeurism in this film, a few moments of voyeurism. And one of my notes, which is one of my favorite titles for a film ever, uh, is keyholes are for peeping, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I like. And you know, another film this kind of reminds me of in terms of sometimes the restraint and how sumptuous a film it is, uh, is in the mood for love. Yeah. That, that, that's a good, uh, that's a good analogy. I didn't think of that. Yeah. And again, that's impractical and an impractical relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not that the relationship is impractical, but, the impracticalities of relationships in, in the real world. And I, yeah. Like the strides that you, I mean like the thing I love about this movie, it's like the strides that you go to please your lover. Um, yes. and that, that takes a certain level of perform like performativity, which yeah. this movie's really having fun with. It absolutely is because it takes it really far. And I think it also looks at the balancing act and the push and pull and the power struggle, even if it's not conscious sometimes, Mm-hmm. But the innate power struggle that you get in relationships because one tends to be one more domineering, one more giving, one more taking, and how the balances can be shifted in relationships either subtly or accidentally or otherwise. Um, I love that they kind of inhabit a very analog world. People write letters. Um, they ride bikes. Um, you know, some people, I'm sure, <laughs> are going to call it a very hipster kind of utopia whatever i mean it i think it's a beautiful world that they've inhabited um and it was refreshing to not see cell phone and technologies in concrete yeah i mean i think i think that it would be hard to make this movie work in a modern setting um because i think what strickland does really well here is he he kind of cuts off everything that would add a layer of uh complication to this film like Mm -hmm. gender gone it's all women that's this world there's no now there's no gender power structure Mm -hmm. uh technology how technology influences sexual like sexuality and relationships if you have a kink you can get that fixed on tech you can get your fix on you know watching videos or something like that gone like you have to this is a world where you have to like seek out your desires in person that's right yeah absolutely um but again, another film with a great score. I think even outside of some of the cat size stuff, like some like some of the stuff that they had either they had done or was done otherwise, some of the string uh, mm-hmm. pieces are really nice. And it even kind of reminds me at times of like Etta Del Orso, you know, the um, the female singer that did a lot of work with uh, Leone. Like she has that very kind of breathy. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I would imitate her, but uh, <laughs> a good idea. Um, so it just feels kind of like you know she could be on the soundtrack for this film. I'd be curious too, how much of Strickland's own obsessions and fixations are, are in this film. I couldn't answer that. I mean, I did get to interview him, um, which was cool. Um, but 
It was very short. It seemed it didn't seem as if he made this movie because these are things he gets off on. More so that he made this movie because he just is like annoyed that people he just seems to be like turned off by the fact that anyone could think that, you know, these that, you know, this isn't vi- viable sexuality. Like he just he wants to make things that are seen as uh, taboo completely normal. Uh, and I think that's kind of that's kind of why I also love I also grew to love this movie more is that, you know, he very much normalizes all these things that people mostly think are perversions. Yeah. And, and I think the love and the sensual side of that go hand in hand, which also now that I've seen no ways film, mm-hmm. uh, love kind of reminds me of that a little bit too. Um, you know, one thing I didn't notice the first time I watched it, I only noticed it this time. Do you see the moment when the camera's panning through the, the class during the lecture and there's a few mannequins in the classroom Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, I noticed them. Like at first, I was watching the camera pans through the classroom, and it's out of focus. But there was like a blonde mannequin, like dressed in everything, just like it's a member of the classroom. I'm like, man, that's a fucking mannequin. And at first, it takes a few seconds because you don't think it's going to be a mannequin, and the camera keeps panning across the classroom, and sure enough, there's another mannequin <laughs> dressed up and everything. Um, so yeah, uh, what else do we got here? Um, yeah, I think it looks to it. Insecurities and fears creeping into relationships quite effectively. And sometimes a seed gets planted rightly or wrongly and, and the impact that has. And yeah, I just how relationships are a difficult tightrope walk sometimes, which I liked seeing presented in uh, a less conventional, but no less acceptable manner, you know, uh, outside mm-hmm. of what we see normally presented on screen. Um, I love the line in this when the, uh, the carpenter, comes to visit them and there's you know there's some tension but she, the carpenter says to um the Chiara Dana character she says would a human toilet be a good compromise <laughs> which uh which is great uh, and I think too it looks at the insecurity with aging and uh again very personal things that sometimes we hang on to uh you know rightly or wrongly neuroses that how they creep into relationships uh the film's beautifully lit, very warm. Um, you know, it's not st- it doesn't feel sterile at all. It feels very warm, which I liked. Mm-hmm. I was gonna say, um, I can't find the name, and I don't think it was a cinematographer, but uh, Strickland does give a big credit to the lighting, uh, the person who handled the lights on this thing as being kind of integral to get the look of it. So I think, like alongside earlier, your praise of the cinematographer, who you know depending on the type of cinematographer you are might be in control of the lights and might be a little more hands off. Um, I can't find a lighting director, so I don't know. Maybe I did mishear him and it was, uh, kind of the DP that handled the lights, but whoever handled the lights here. Yes. I mean, I 100% agree, uh, complete hands off or complete kind of clap to, and also the colorist of the film, which I think did a fantastic job. Oh yeah. Uh, You know, costume design is brilliant. Which I think I mentioned, sorry, makeup, mm-hmm. uh, art direction. You know, a lot of the stuff you're seeing visually on screen is is just a real treat uh, if this is your bag. Um, I think it kind of, too, looks at the absurdity uh, of some moments. Um, I'll tell you, I love, love, love the scene when, um, uh, what's her name, the Danish actress there, Sidsi Knudsen, how she's got her, like, um, 
Miko Kaji like sun hat on mm-hmm. and she's pulling up to that building and it's all very yellow and she goes inside the library and it's just beautiful. It's really beautiful. Um, you know what? You know who else this film reminds me of? You know who I think would love this film if he was still alive is, is Bergman. Yeah, I can see that. I think it's um, it's kind of in his it's in his ballpark without really feeling like you know. It I I would never think to say Bergman, but now that you mention it, it you know makes sense. I think there's some domestic cruelty in here. Like there's there's that really and some honesty in relationships that you saw with Bergman in his films. You know the the cruelty with the birthday cake mm-hmm. because that's a very petty thing that is being guised as normal practice between the two, but we know the motivation and the cruelty behind that and the pettiness and the power struggle. And then that moment's punctuated more when, and I think the only other time I've seen this in a film is another filmmaker who deals with domestic cruelty in some ways um, with uh, Henneke. When there's a moment when Knudsen says to Donna, she says, Oh, your breath's like a hyena. Yeah, and that like if if you were about to kiss someone, and for the most part, like you know your your lover, your your boyfriend, girlfriend, wife, husband, whomever, and they tell you your breath smells like shit, like that's like that hurts, <laughs> you know. That's why I always carry gum, and I always got everyone knows I always got peppermint gum with me, man. Yeah, and there's a, one other scene um, uh, where uh, Evelyn uh, Shiara's character tells um, um, Cynthia. Uh, that she looks like she looks like essentially that she looks like shit because she's not dressed up for like it's like the first time in the movie we see her kind of in like just like normal PJs yeah. and she's like you look like shit like so she's she's like like why aren't you being sexy for me like yeah. and that's a struggle throughout the film like you see her Cynthia is always staring at herself in the mirror and like meticulously making herself up into this image uh, and then she kind of gets this one moment to like just kind of relax and you know Evelyn's quick to judge and Evelyn's a little bit younger and Cynthia I think again that plays into the whole thing of her age and being a bit older fear of aging loss of beauty mm-hmm. um, she wants to be comfortable man as I've gotten older I've, I've worn sweatpants more I mean mm-hmm. I don't like roll in them all the time but I'd be lying if I said I didn't come home and want to put on like my Zubaz pants and my slippers <laughs> because I can't stay in like tight jeans all the time. Like it's just not, not comfortable. And I don't wear like girdles and corsets and all this shit. So I can't even imagine wanting to slip on some, some pajamas at that point. Um, yeah, I don't have a whole lot more in terms of notes. Uh, I think the dream sequence towards the back end of the film is terrific and kind of reminds me of Bava mm-hmm. in some ways. Um, again, care paid to production design, how artistically and clean the film is in, in that way. Um, anyway, those are all my notes. Let me kick it over to you, man. I've been rambling on about this thing for a while. Oh, no worries. Um, I mean, you hit a lot of stuff I want to talk about. I mean, I think, as I said, I think this movie really works on the strength of its like kind of comment on the performance level of, uh, of relationships. We all put on masks. We all perform for our, for our kind of lovers and, you know, want to be – want to be what they want us to be in a way um think and i think the thing about strickland is he's funny and this he movie's is. not apparently funny but i mean just the credit for the perfume yes uh, in the beginning of the film like and lingerie there's a lingerie credit yeah um which the lingerie credit almost makes sense because yes. like, oh you're seeing that on screen but we're not seeing the perfume on screen like yes. we're not seeing it as like strongly you get a sense like 
that, oh, this movie's wafting with this perfume scent uh, so much so that we have to credit it. <laughs> like, those are the little touches, yeah. I think, that show how, how really funny Strickland is. And that this movie's not so um, kind of drastically serious. It's and, not self-serious. No. Um, and I think I took it more that way the first time I watched it. And after having thought about it for a while, I started to like open up to it. And the second viewing really helped me realize that it's he's having a lot of fun here. It's just not... It's just not up. It's just not ex- like explicitly like there. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, there's one scene that I absolutely love uh, involving water sports. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, not because of that, and you don't really see anything. Uh, Ooh, Joe re- revealing a little bit about himself there. Yeah, not to open up the curtain. A little, no. <laughs> the beef curtains, maybe, but. <laughs> um, but. Uh, we're closed off to it, and um, I said this to him, and it didn't really get that much of a. He didn't confirm it, so it kind of. But it's maybe one of those happy accidents when she closes the bathroom door. The pattern on the bathroom door looks like a blank film strip, um, and it to me, like of course, because I'm always reading probably far too much into films. I just saw it as uh, this idea that like kind of film can actually block you from seeing things so it's um it's you know sometimes what's not being shown is more uh psychologically like uh, titillating than what is being shown so this kind of reminder that you're looking at blank film on top of a essentially blank screen uh really i thought was brilliant um oh no for sure i didn't key in on that um i think the movie like i said um in this I think visually this is a very anti-erotic film. There's no nudity, which will probably bum some people out um, who kind of expect this to be a very sexy film. And and hearing the Franco and Roland references, I think a lot of people would expect this movie to be nude. But Strickland said that, you know, erotic films with nudity have been done before. So he was looking for a way to make this movie erotic without being necessarily, like, explicit. And I think that where this movie is very erotic is in that there's a psychological drive to want to please. Um, and I think he actually makes you feel that eroticism through that, but really the, the images themselves, other than being um, very lush and beautiful, um, generally sex isn't shot in a very sexy way uh, in the way it's not quite as drastic as something like nymphomaniac, but you know, the, I would say like the most, uh, conventionally sexy shot is a scene where Evelyn is, um, you know, performing oral sex on Cynthia. But even that is like two seconds long before Strickland actually blurs it completely out and Rack focuses away from it. Yes. So I think that there's an intentional kind of push away from uh, kind of dis- like wanting to see this movie as like, you know, softcore porn or something. No, yeah, it's, it's a good uh, – and I think to be honest, I think – it would have been too self-serving uh, and it would have betrayed the spirit of the film to have it just be like a, like a sleaze fest nude fest. Mm-hmm. So, um, I only have a few more things here. Um, the carpenter scene you already mentioned. Uh, I love it. Just how it gets in the details of everything it takes to, you know, I guess when we think of, uh, you know, bondage or kind of, 
these type of sex, like you don't think about the process of actually going and picking out your tools of trade. You just think of having them. Uh, and I think yep. going into such detail about how long it takes and how your neighbor has one too, like it's like almost like keeping up with the Joneses meets like, you know, picking out like your next computer. Uh, but it just happens to also be a sex, like a sex device, uh, which I thought was great. Oh, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. Absolutely. And then um, just like I said, the power dynamic that is gained by not having genders is um, fantastic. And then, you know, this disc looks really great. I expected it to. It's a dig. You know, I assume this movie was shot digitally. I didn't check, but you know, digital films are generally transferred pretty well. But you know, it's it's beautiful looking on Blu-ray. I definitely recommend. Shout Factory putting it on. I guess I did want to say, like, I almost think that this movie could have worked as a screen Scream Factory release too, but um, I don't. It doesn't shock me that they did the Shout Factory release, but you know that kind of divide can be kind of arbitrary at times for the for the company. No, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, yeah, and then I won't get into my last note just because it'll you know not to really be, it'll be my make or break scene, so I'll just talk about it then. Excellent. Um, make or break is I'm going to go with the first reveal when we see that at first our expectations as viewers are played with in terms of what we're seeing on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, because I didn't really know what was happening at first when I'd first seen it. So I think the way that we think, ah, oh, that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just that from that point on. Because at that point we're seeing if it's been a visual feast already. Every time I go with Strickland, I think he's one of the best filmmakers going. For me, again, mileage varies, but... Big fan here. Uh, he's a very smart, talented man. And my score is an 8.5. Um, I love this film. It's going to be in my top 30 of the year, without question. Um, because even though it got released last year, I only got to see it this year. So I'm counting it for this year so I can sing its praises again. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, I'm pretty much right on ball with you. Um, my make or break is different. My make or break is the dream sequence. Um, oh, it's the artistic flair that this movie kind of needs. Also, I think the movie's a tad long. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe about five to ten minutes longer than That's it fair. has to be, but it works. But the dream sequence, I think, really helps to push the latter half uh, into its own little territory for a little bit, and I loved it. Uh, it could have been a standalone piece. I think um, there's an interesting aspect where in, like, Blue Velvet, we go into the ear, Um to go into that kind of sequence, um, if you know what I'm talking about, um, there's that weird shot where he like you know goes into the ear. Oh yes, uh, yes, yes. And I think Strickland almost mocks that a little uh, by having his camera go into uh, Cynthia's crotch, um, yes. uh, the darkness <laughs> that's formed by her crotch, and then we get into the dream sequence, and then we come out. So it's almost this dream that exists within the kind of uh, you know private area of Cynthia, which is. Fascinating. It's also not a very subjective dream. Like it could be, it could be Cynthia's dream. It could be Evelyn's dream. So that that really worked for me. Um, my MVT is Strickland as well. It was ha- It was it was almost an easy but also hard choice. Um, obviously Strickland deserves it. Um, but it could have easily went to the actors who do such a fantastic job. But I really feel that Strickland kind of put his guiding touch on every aspect of this movie. Um, not that every director doesn't do that, but some directors do it a little better um, than others. Um, and then my score is also 8.5 out of 10. I think that uh, when I first saw this, I probably would have rated it closer to like a 7.5, 7.75. But on a rewatch, it really worked a lot better for me. Excellent. Excellent. Very good. 
Okay, good stuff. Uh, that, as we say, is the big show. Uh, Sammy and I will be back next week with uh, some Halloweeny goodness. Um, we'll let you guys know what it's going to be. I think we're still ironing out the kinks for that. Uh, Joe, I want to thank you for turning around and uh, getting on the show this week, man. It was uh, yeah. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to uh, to have you on. We'll have to get you on with Sammy next time, so you get uh, the north and the south, and the uh, I guess the east. So. Um, wonderful. Uh, so, uh, with that being said, it is time to boogie. And as always, we have one thing left to say. Adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com.